inside your newsletter, you'll find a, a little insert like this. If you uh, can, you grab that, pull it right out there. On this insert, you'll find all kinds of ways that you can be bold in your growth, your spiritual growth, your worship, your hospitality, your mission and service. I want you to keep in mind all the different ways that, that you can give as we watch together this video about being bold in our generosity.
I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Let's hear together verses 6 through 16 this morning. Now while Peter, excuse me, while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came in with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when the disciples saw it, they were angry and said, Why this waste? For this ointment could have been sold for a large sum and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. By pouring this ointment on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Then one of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I betray him to you? They paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Not so long ago, I went by and picked up my mom, and we went on kind of a sentimental journey. We went to see someone who was very important to our lives and who is a very important part of my uh, faith story, I guess you could say. Her name is Miss Clara. And I've always called her Miss Clara from the time I was little. I know she's got a last name. It, her last name's not Clara, and her first name's not Miss, but she'll always be Miss Clara to me. You ever have those people in your life? And we got to go see Miss Clara. Miss Clara's not doing well, physically speaking. She had a stroke a few years ago, and uh, her body is greatly affected by that. She's mostly bed fast. Um, her eyesight was has been going downhill for years, and she just can hardly see anything now. She has to know you by the sound of your voice is how she recognizes you. She has one arm that she can't use at all. She has one arm she just has partial use of. You've got to get the picture. Everything in Miss Claire's life kind of has to be done for her, except for one thing. Miss Clara does her own praying. She has not slowed down in her prayer life, and I have been a benefactor of Miss Clara's prayers ever since I was a little kid. See, I grew up, she was in my home church, in my home community, and I grew up with her kids. She had four kids. We all grew up together. Miss Clara was our Sunday school teacher. She, was, she helped out with vacation Bible school, the Christmas program, whatever had to be done. She was always there, and she would always come up to us kids, uh, whether we belonged to her biologically or not, and she would take our little faces in, in her hands, and she would say, now you're my boy or you're my girl, and I love you, and I'm praying for you, and we would wiggle out of her grasp and we'd go on and do whatever we're going. But I look back and I think, wow, what would my life be like if it hadn't been for the prayers of people like Miss Clara? And then when we went to see her and spent time, my mother and I spent time with Miss Clara, and before I, I left, um, she grabbed a hold of my hand and she said, you know, you're still my boy and I'm still praying for you. And I said, thank you, Miss Clara. You see, Miss Clara, if somebody was looking from the outside, Miss Clara would not have been 
somebody that you would have thought, wow, what a remarkable person. But if you knew her, if you were one of her boys or one of her girls, and you knew how much she loved and how much she gave, you knew what kind of a remarkable person she was. She just loved and loved. And she gave and she gave. And she did all of that with boldness. Now what I mean by boldness with Miss Clara is that Miss Clara was one of those that she would just go the extra mile. She would go above and beyond. I'll bet you know some Miss Claras in your life and you've, you've had some of those people that have impacted your life because of what they've done, because of what they loved, how they loved, how they gave. You see, Miss Clara didn't just raise her kids, but she helped raise all of us. She didn't just take care of her own family. She also took care. She was a primary caregiver for her, her physically uh, handicapped brother who lived next door. And she just raised her, her mentally handicapped niece who lived with them while she would be at Miss Clara's all day while her mom was at work. She just raised that girl. She just raised her. When everybody, uh, anybody in the community had a, a death in the family, Miss Clara showed up. And she's the first one there. If anybody was sick, Miss Clara showed up. What can I do? How can I help? If anything was going on at the church, Miss Clara showed up. Any job that needed to be done, Miss Clara showed up. When the offering plate came around, Miss Clara showed up. You know, she didn't have much, but she just gave. And she just loved because that's who she was. That's who she is. Many years ago now, it's been many years ago, um, I had the unique opportunity to be appointed to uh, a three-point charge and one of the churches that was one of my churches was my home church. You know, that never happens. Y'all know, Roger, that never happens. Probably for good reason, because a prophet is without honoring his hometown, it says in the good book somewhere, you know. Uh, but that was a, a, a treat for me, because I got to go back to my home church, this time as a grown-up, with my own little bitty kids. And I got to be around some of these people that made such a difference in my life. I got to be around Miss Clara this time as her pastor. And she was still at home this time. She's, she was homebound, but she hadn't had that big stroke yet. But I was at her kitchen table talking with her one day. We were talking about old times. And I just said, Miss Clara, I think back about when we were growing up, about all that you did and all that you gave for so many people. And I just wonder... How did you do all of that? And she just smiled at me. And she said, you know, Brother Sam, what she called me, helping and giving were the greatest joys of my life. And I just wish I could have given more. I just wish I could have given more. Just above and beyond. Do you know somebody like that? It's above and beyond. Well, we see somebody like that in the scripture that we read, the gospel this morning, Matthew 26. Here's the setting. It's in a little place called Bethany, just a few miles down the road from Jerusalem on the road to Jericho. And it's at the house of a guy that Matthew calls Simon the leper. Now, he distinguishes him from all the other Simons. There are a bunch of Simons in the Bible. It was a very common name. There's, oh, there's Simon Peter. There was... Simon the Zealot, there was Simon of Cyrene, Simon the Sorcerer. Every time you turn around, there was a Simon. This was Simon the Leper. I don't know about you. I would not want to be known as Simon the Leper. Give me one of those others, Simon the Shoemaker or something like that. But Simon the Leper, oh my gosh. 
Leprosy was such a horrible disease. To be separated from everybody that you love, to have to cover your face and to yell unclean anytime anybody approaches you, what an awful disease. And Jesus must have healed him of his leprosy. And so he had a dinner party and he invited Jesus. And Jesus came and brought all of his disciples. And in the middle of dinner, in the middle of dinner, this woman comes in. Well, you say, which woman? Well, we really don't know. Matthew doesn't tell us her name, but he tells us what she does, which is amazing, really. She, she brings this alabaster jar of very costly ointment, perfumed ointment. It wasn't the cheap stuff that's just made with olive oil and some spices. This was the very expensive stuff made of pure nard, and, and it was imported from India, and it, it was so precious and so expensive that it usually passed down from generation to generation. And it was worth, another place in the Bible tells us it was worth a year's wages, just one bottle of ointment. Now, I don't know what your yearly income is. I'm not your accountant. But you know, so I want you to close your eyes for a second, and I want you to picture that number up in your head. Picture that number, your, whatever your annual income is. Okay, now open your eyes back up. You've got that number. I want you to imagine that you are holding in your hand a jar of ointment that is worth that number. Does it make you want to hold on tight? It makes me want to think, oh, I hope I don't drop this and break it. But this woman broke the top off of that alabaster jar and poured it on Jesus' head. And not just a little dab, like you would a very, very expensive perfume. The whole thing. Would that not make your head swim a little bit to think about what she did out of love and devotion to Jesus? Well, the disciples had a different kind of reaction. They got mad. You know, there's only a couple of places in the Bible where it says the disciples really got angry and none of them turned out real well. One, one was a time in Mark chapter 10 where James and John came up to Jesus and said, Lord, can one of us sit on your right hand and one of us on your left hand when you're coming to your glory? And then it says the other ten just got mad. They just got fighting mad. And Jesus rebuked all of them. He said, y'all don't know what you're talking about. And this time, they got mad. And they said to him, well, why should, why should this be wasted like this? Couldn't this money have been, couldn't this have been sold? And couldn't we give this money to the poor? Well, they got a point, you know, if you think about it. That's kind of a reasonable question to ask. Except that Jesus knew their hearts. You see, I think 11 out of the 12 asked that question because they were kind of embarrassed by this woman and her great show of love and devotion to Jesus. She had gone over and above what anybody would be expected to do. They hadn't done a thing. I mean, they'd really done squat. And here, she did this beautiful, wonderful thing. They're probably embarrassed. And it came out as being angry. And then one of the 12, Judas, we, we find in other places in the Bible, in the Gospel of John, Judas was the keeper of the money bag, okay? And we know where his heart was. He, 
it says in the Gospel of John that he used to take from the money. He had his hand in the till, so to speak, and he was thinking, boy, what if I could have gotten my hands on a year's wages in the money bag? What could I have done with that? And Jesus said, you've got the poor with you always, but you'll not have me always with you. And some people have tried to make Jesus' statement here as a justification for poverty. Well, you know, poverty is just going to be here. That's what Jesus said. You'll always have the poor with you. It's just the opposite of what Jesus meant. What Jesus means here is if you're really concerned about the poor, and you should be, you're always going to have an opportunity. It's, it's simple. It's like what Carmen said on the video. It's, it's not complicated. You just see a need, and you meet a need. You see something needs to be done, and you meet it. You, you're always going to have a chance to do that. But this woman, even though she didn't really know it, she was anointing Jesus for his burial, and it was a beautiful thing. But the disciples couldn't, they couldn't get it. For them, it was just too extravagant. Just too extravagant. My friend Phil Schrader is a minister in the North Georgia Conference, and he tells about a time when he served at Peachtree Road United Methodist Church in downtown Atlanta, around the Buckhead area. A uh, big, beautiful church. I don't know if you've ever seen it or had a chance to go there. It's a wonderful church. But he was on staff there, and uh, they had tons of ministry and everything going on, but most of the ministers that, that were there um, would take Monday as their day off. And so some Mondays, Phil would be the only one there to, to take a call if someone called and wanted to talk to a minister. And one Monday, this guy called, and, uh, and Phil, phone got sent to Phil. Phil answered, and this very grumpy man said, I have a problem with the pastoral prayer yesterday. And Phil said, well, I wasn't the one who prayed it, but what are your issues with the prayer, sir? And to himself, Phil was thinking, you mean you've got time to call the church on a Monday morning and complain about the prayer? You really need to get a hobby. But he didn't say that. We preachers don't always say everything that crosses our mind. So, um, so Phil, uh, listening to the man complain, he said, he said, well, uh, whoever prayed that prayer yesterday said that God was extravagant. And, you know, that's not all right. God is just not extravagant. And Phil said, well, what do you mean by that, sir? And he said, well, I looked it up in the dictionary. And you know what it means? It means to, to, to go beyond reasonable limits. It means to be excessive and to even be wasteful. And God's not like that. And Phil said, you know, that's funny, but that sounds exactly like what God is like to me. Doesn't it to you? Isn't, isn't God above and beyond and beyond any reasonable limits? Let me give you an example. You ever walk around in the springtime and look at a field of wildflowers? Just look. Wildflowers. I looked it up, and there's like over a thousand different kinds just of wildflowers. It's just excessive. I mean, if we just had one or two kinds, that would have been beautiful. But it's just beyond any reasonable limits. Let me ask you this. I'm going to just get a show of hands just to make sure you're still awake out there today. How many of you ever take a drive up to Mentone in the fall when the leaves are turning green? Oh, if you haven't, you need to. It just takes your breath away. And I look at that. It's beautiful in 
and more beautiful than just about anything you can imagine. You think, well, you know, one or two colors would have been enough, God. I mean, but look at this. Man, this is just, this is just excessive. It's extravagant beauty. It's, did you know, and I looked this up too, 20,000 different kinds of butterflies. Butterflies. Every single one of them is a little flapping work of art. More than living down in the deepest, darkest part of the ocean where, I mean, human eyes hardly ever get to see are over 15,000 different species of, of these exotic, beautiful, colorful animals that are just there. Just because God is just <coughs> extravagant and bold in the way that he gives and the way that he loves. I guess the biggest example of God's just abundant, bold extravagance is found in a word that we call the incarnation. And it's just a fancy way of saying the word became flesh and dwelt among, of us, uh, among us. If you really want to know what God is like, the best way you can actually know is by looking at Jesus. Because Jesus was the fullness of God in human flesh. Look how he lived. Look how he just went beyond. Look at his extravagant life. I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, the first miracle that Jesus did, he went to a wedding at Cana, and they went out of, they ran out of wine, and, and then we know Jesus turned the water into wine. We say that so casually. Yes, Jesus turned the water into wine. But think about it. It wasn't just any old wine. It was the best wine that the host had ever tasted in his whole life. And Jesus did that. Because that's the way Jesus gave. That's the way he loved. When the disciples were looking at a crowd of 5,000 people out there, wondering how they were going to feed them, and they, they brought what little they had, five loaves and two fish to Jesus, and Jesus prayed and blessed it and broke it and served it. Did everybody have enough to eat that day? Yeah. Not only that, they had 12 baskets left over. Extravagance. You know, I could go on and on, but you get the idea by now is that God has something to say to us when it comes to loving. God has something to say to us when it comes to generosity and giving. What he has to say to us is not just his beautiful creation around us, but more importantly, the life of Jesus Christ is what God has to say to us about giving. And what he has to say to us, you probably learned in Sunday school class, probably taught to you by somebody like Miss Clara. And I want you to say this out loud to me. It's John 3, 16. I'll bet every one of us can say it. If you could say it out loud, say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I want you to land with both feet with me on the action words in John 3.16. God loved so much that God gave. God loved so much that God gave. He gave what? A lecture? No. He gave how much? Just a little bit? No. 
God's own self. Everything. Bold. Extravagant. Those are perfect adjectives when it comes to how God loves and how God gives. Bold and extravagant. Now let's just be real for a moment. What adjective would be used for how our church loves and how our church gives? And let's bring this a little bit closer to home and look at our own lives just honestly and say, what if you had to pick one adjective that would describe the way that you love and the way that you give? Would it be extravagant? Or are we holding something back? still with me this morning or have I stopped preaching and gone to meddling yet? All right. Today is the kickoff for our generosity season and it's really the one time of the year that we, we talk about, about giving and we ask you to, to pray about and, and to, to look at the different ways that you can be bold not only in, in your generosity uh, but in your spiritual growth and your worship and your service hospitality uh, and this year we we kind of uh, did something different we we wanted to to challenge our church leadership our board of stewards our, our leadership of our church um, that before we ever sent anything out to to the general congregation and ask you to to give for the coming year that we called our leadership together just for a, a special time and we said uh, okay we want all of us, our, our, our staff, our church leadership, to lead by example. And we ask uh, our, our church leadership, our board of stewards, to be the first ones. And, and so we, we asked them, and I want to say I'm, I'm really proud of the way our church leadership has stepped up. And uh, Matthew, can you put the, that slide up here? Here is what our church leadership did. Um, before we even appealed to the congregation, our church leadership has done this. Is that up there? Yeah. 26 families pledge that amount of money, which is about 28% of our budget, is already raised before we even get started. Okay? And I want you to give yourselves a, a hand for that. That's, that's a remarkable thing to do. And here's the challenge. All of us have got to get the rest of the way there. And this is important. And I know it's hard. I don't know why it's so hard for us to talk about money, but sometimes it is. But it's important for us to be able to give because all of these things uh, on, this, on this brochure, that someone counted up and said there were over 50 different kinds of ministries and opportunities that we have. And all of it's possible because you give. Talking about giving is hard. It really shouldn't be. Jesus talked about it a lot. Sometimes with us it's hard, though. I have another friend. His name is Tony, and he's a minister out in Portland, Oregon. And Tony's one of those cool guys that's, he's got a, a shaved head and a soul patch. And I don't know, he probably wears uh, Birkenstocks and eats granola. He's, one, he's a kind of a hipster guy, you know what I'm saying? He's really cool, though. And Tony meets with this group of men every week, and they have a prayer breakfast together. And it's, it's in Portland, it's a very diverse group of men that meets. I mean, you have 
all different races and all different levels of education, different careers, different the faiths and denominations. And Tony says they have the greatest time. It's always they're always lively conversation, and they can talk about well just about anything. They talk about even tough issues like like race and religion and politics, and even tougher issues like sports. You know, they they can talk about anything. There's one thing they can't talk about. You know what that is? Money. And I said, Tony, what are you talking about? He said, every time we talk about money, we always end up getting in a fight. I said, why do you think that is? He said, I guess it's because here in the same room, you have one person sitting on one side that might be a millionaire and one person sitting on the other side that might be on welfare. And we just get in a fight, so we just... We just said that off limits. We're just not going to talk about it. Why is it so hard? I think maybe I heard someone say one time that there's a nerve that stretches from our wallets and reaches all the way to our hearts. I think Jesus said it this way, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I want to close by telling you another story that involves my friend Phil. This one is about his youngest son, Paul. When Paul was a little boy, and Paul is grown now, but this tells you how long ago this has been. When Paul was a little boy, uh, Paul's birthday was in November, so he got uh, a list and made himself a birthday list. Do y'all, you ever get your children to make birthday lists? We still do, because I said, look, you don't want me picking out what you want. Let Give me some ideas, okay? So they still make birthday lists. Always goes up on the refrigerator, right? So Paul's, at the top, he wrote Paul's birthday list and wrote down his birthday list, put it up on the refrigerator with one of those little magnets, you know. And then so after his birthday, he went in there and put the birthday list down and got, went on his list and he marked off the things that he got for his birthday. There's still several things left on there. And then at the top of the list, he crossed out birthday and wrote Christmas. And then he went and put it back up on the refrigerator. And, and Phil went into the kitchen, he saw that, and he, he laughed just like you did. But he thought, you know, uh, there's a lesson to be learned here. And so he went in and got Paul by the hand and he t- took him into the kitchen. And he pointed to the list and he said, son, you know, don't you, that Christmas isn't your birthday, it's Jesus's. What will you give Jesus this year? And what I would change just a little bit today is I would say, church, when you get your generosity card in the mail this week, I want you to look at that. I want you to look at that insert that says, be bold in your growth and your worship and your hospitality and your service. Be bold in your generosity. I want you to look at that and ask, what can I give to Christ? And will I give boldly? Let us pray. Oh, Lord, when we think about what you have done for us, when we think about how you have loved us, I pray that our hearts would not only be filled with gratitude, but also awed and challenged so that we would not walk away like Judas and say, what would you give me? but that we would be like that woman whose only heart was, what can I do for you, Lord? 
Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our closing hymn is number 389. It's a